Welcome to In Asia from the Asia Foundation. I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Yang. After 20 years of dazzling growth, Asia is now home to nearly half of the world's urban population, as hundreds of millions of people have flocked to the region's booming megacities. But too often, amid this breakneck growth, the lack of public infrastructure has left behind the very citizens whose toil has built Asia's prosperity. Now there's a reckoning afoot in the form of COVID-19. In an essay in this week's In Asia blog, authors Nicola Nixon, Mandakini Suri, and Kim McQuay argue that pervasive failures of urban governance exposed by the pandemic are already starting to exact serious costs. Nicola Nixon joins us now, via the intertubes, of course, from her home in Hanoi. She's the Asia Foundation's Director of Governance. Nicola, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Thank you, Tracy. What's it like in Hanoi this morning? It's lovely in Hanoi this morning. It's bright and sunny. And it's going to be warm, but not too warm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Nicola, your essay states very bluntly that poverty in Asia is going to rise. Why is that? It's largely the effect of the pandemic. COVID-19 has caused a massive economic slowdown globally. And so that's also impacting on this region. The region here, however, is already slightly more fragile than than other regions, say, for example, Europe, because of the high levels of informal labour. There's informal labour, there's a high level of vulnerability to poverty. So while the numbers of actual poor have gone down over the last two decades, the numbers of vulnerable to poverty uh, have stayed fairly steady. So the impact of an economic slowdown, massive loss of jobs, collapse of major sectors, particularly um, tourism, There's an enormous amount of tourism throughout Asia. All of this is going to have long-term knock-on impacts that are going to produce a a much larger number of um, poor. So it says here that um, you and your colleagues just completed a rapid assessment of social welfare for the ASEAN Secretariat. How have you seen these large-scale economic disruptions playing out on the ground? Mainly in in terms of a high level of uncertainty. People are uncertain about their jobs. So, for example, across ASEAN, 10 countries in ASEAN, you've got up to 70, 80 percent of the labour market in informal labour. That means that people don't have job contracts. They don't have any kind of job security. And most often they don't actually have any kind of insurance either. Now, these are the easiest jobs to shed if you're a business because you don't have any legal requirements to to worry about looking after the person that's losing their job. So, Across the board, a high level of insecurity in in informal labour, and that plays out in particular areas. So the tourism market has has largely collapsed. So anyone who was working in tourism is now struggling to eke out a living, particularly if they were in the lower paid levels of the tourism sector. I was talking to a a street seller in uh, Hoi An. She sells jewellery as she walks along the beach, and she said that her income is down sort of about 80% since the pandemic hit and she spends her time hoping that the planes, she said that as soon as the planes start again, that then tourism will start up again and maybe there'll be, be some people to sell her wares to. And we see this across the board in that particularly street sellers, street hawkers, informal food stalls, all of these keep being impacted, particularly when a lockdown comes and then everyone has to stay at home then it's that level of the informal labour market that's that's very, very badly impacted. 
Nicola, how do your rapid assessment findings in ASEAN compare to other Asian cities? I guess to, to some extent, the ASEAN region, so the 10 countries of ASEAN, haven't necessarily been impacted as intensively as some of the other parts of Asia. Now, that's except for Philippines and Indonesia. Um, and in fact, you can see a really strong diversity across the ASEAN countries between, say, for example, the impact at the moment on Cambodia and Laos, where there's a very low level of infections, and similarly in Vietnam, across then to Indonesia and, and Philippines, where you know cases are increasing rapidly at the moment. And then you can also compare that to, to cities such as Delhi or Mumbai in India, where the warning that they were, the city was going to go into a lockdown was very sudden, and people started leaving and just simply walking home. That was actually shocking. Really, really disturbing scenes. You know, people were walking along train tracks. You know, you'd have whole families walking along the road. And just this sense of, you know, the rejection from the city, that these weren't really city inhabitants. They're not really city residents. They didn't really have a, a sense of belonging. They, they were just going to walk for hundreds, if not thousands of kilometres to get home. Now, this is a really strong indication that cities aren't providing the services that a lot of people need. Another dimension of the challenges of urban governance in the region is that over the years, we, we really see this intense inequality um, epitomised within cities between, you know, the really flashy central business districts in every city. And in the peri-urban areas, you've got really high-dense populations living in very poor quality housing on very low incomes. So the cruelty of social distance pronouncements when people are crowded together, and the fact is you can't social distance when when you're living so close to others, and when quite often you don't have access to decent sanitation services. Let me ask a a, a kind of a cynical question here. Mm -hmm. Many people on the bottom rung of society seem to be suffering terribly. Does this matter to the rest of society? What do they have to lose? You know, inequalities, and this is where, you know, you've got to thank the World Bank for finally getting there, that inequalities are actually really bad for economic growth. If you're going to allow a very large number of people to become much, much poorer, so it's end up reducing your middle class in the middle, you're actually going to slow down your potential for economic growth. But these are busy, tight-knit, up-and-coming cities across Asia that where people do care a lot. And you particularly find there's a really strong spirit of interest and engagement in producing better societies and better ways of living among young people. There's a real energy there. And I do think that particularly a lot of interested, engaged and often, often quite highly educated young people really do care. So then what are some policies that these Asian megacities can introduce now to address these inequalities? Across developing Asia, it's often there's often very good policies. There's often very good legislation, um, words on paper, words in reports, words on documents. The implementation gap is the the challenge that a lot of um, a lot of parts of Asia face, where it's just the institutions aren't there and the systems and the structures to be able to implement what are pretty good policies. But some of the policy areas that we are seeing um, a lot of energy going into at the moment, and this is where we've seen from the ASEAN study that we're just working on with the ASEAN Secretariat, 
there is a, a great level of interest to improve social welfare targeting, um, to be able to get social welfare payments to people who need them most, and to really look at the labour market policies in tandem with the education policies to see whether or not um, people are receiving an education that's going to be relevant to the world of work now and the world of work in the future and how they can change education policies and, and labour policies, labour market policies, to enable more people to get jobs. But this will take a lot of energy and some different ways of doing things across Asian governments and particularly city governments across Asia. Nicola Nixon, thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks, Tracy. And that's all for our podcast this week. You can read Nicola's thought-provoking essay in this week's blog. Until next time, I'm Tracy Yang. And I'm John Rieger. Thanks for listening.